Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcasts. G'day and welcome to a noisy edition of Thrash and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast that will only plead guilty to bullying the jukebox if fuckwitted of our crimes against comedy. And speaking of fuckwitted, I'm Aaron and I'm joined as usual by, um, oh shit, sorry. Hang on a second. Um, oh, that's right. Evan. Hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. How you doing? Hi, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't sure if that was a bit or not. It was. It was a total okay. bit. It says here, um, <laughs> shit, wait, sorry, damn it, where, oh, um, Evan, my co-host. And oh, I was meant to be awkward. Hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so anyways, guess what? What? We have another tech diva in the sound booth today. And between Evan, the super nerd, and this mix master, help. So let me introduce to you a multi-award-winning sound designer whose electrifying career and can-do attitude prove that, oh, no matter the onomatopoeia, he's the Axel Foley of the sound desk set because we've copped an earful of his arresting oral arrangements, such as putting the <laughs> in Carousel, the bippity boppity Borborangus in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella, as well as the tweet-tweet in Lacage Falls, uncaging a stellar career which has weighed down his shelves with multiple award wins at the Olivier's, Tony's, Outer Critics Circle, Helen Hayes Awards, and more. I mean, he's literally up to his ears in auricular accolades. And luckily for us, this cacophonous creative has marched to the beat of his own eardrum by sending in the sound along with the clowns for a little night music, plus adding a zzz or two to Young Frankenstein, Little Shop of Horrors, plus the present day nostalgic hit Back to the Future, which is timely since he's gone from brum brum of the DeLorean to the ch ch doot doot for Germany's stationary production of Starlight Express to the of 39 planes, which came from away. And whilst traveling via planes, trains, and automobiles, he's journeyed up 42nd Street, merrily rolled along to Memphis, where he soared in the heights, passing over a fiddler on the roof, where this auditive auteur breezed on by to put the wind in the willows. And I, for one, tip my top hat to him. So please give your warmest, most Aussiest amplified g'day and a sound wave to this highly decorated audio guru whose otic offerings oscillate 1,000 times over every week in major theatres worldwide where you can hear his boing from the Spring Awakening and the music of MJ, Summer, Bad Out of Hell, Let It Be, Mamma Mia The Party, and, and Juliet, plus the uh, totally culturally appropriate sounds of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and the Prince of Egypt, plus a bunch more, but I'm running out of paper and breath, so please welcome to the torture chamber, this technical wizard, a leader, an entrepreneur, Mr. Gareth Owen. How are you going? Welcome to the torture chamber. I'm sorry, I wasn't recording that. We're gonna, can we do another take? <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was the silliest one I have written so far. It's, it's, it's seriously impressive. You need to remember to breathe, but it was great. <laughs> yes, I, I was breathing along the way. I do that singer's thing of when you're breathing... Not in the middle of a sentence, which is when normal people breathe. I noticed that from editing this podcast, performers, we take breaths whenever we get them in. So, yes. <laughs> that oscillating singing thing where you breathe on the in as well as the out. Yes. There's a, there's a fabulous uh, 
fabulous Jack Black sketch in one of the uh, one of Jack Black's um, Tenacious D albums, where he's demonstrating he's obviously not particularly good at it. But it's a funny, it's a funny sketch. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I do like my Jack Black, as we will find out next week. We were talking about School of Rock with Glenn Slater. Spoiler alert for everybody. So the the, uh, the tenacious D drive through sketch is absolutely hilarious. Yes, I must check it out. Evan, you should know these ones. No, not off the top of my head. No, no, no. I've I've seen them live, but not not like no, I haven't devoured everything they've done. No, not yet. I, I would love to devour everything Jack Black does. <laughs> but Evan's got three wonders on his arcade machine, so he's uh, in my in my book, he's pretty much infallible at this point yeah for the <laughs> listeners at home our guest today is the first time that a guest has rec- uh, requested a background on the arcade game which we <laughs> i think we're actually going to mention next week i think actually no it's our christmas episode with chris oh, sarandon episode, yeah yeah we have jack skellington and the game will be nightmare before christmas that was an easy one there was actually a, the game for it yeah that was a perfect one yes but anyways now you're yes. currently uh, you're in tech week for mj the musical tech week it's more like tech year um <laughs> it's about five weeks of tech and then we've got something like 71 previews but this is also a show that we've been workshopping and playing around with I mean, yep. it's, it's easily, I've, I've easily been doing workshops for it for five, six years. Oh, uh, I mean, obviously with those 18 months, two year break in the middle with COVID ballsing everything up. But um, yeah, I mean, years and years and years we've been doing workshops. I think I've done four or five workshops and every time it's been with full sound and full full band and, you know, everyone everyone in microphones. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a long time coming this gig. Goodness me. Now, okay, let's pretend you're in a, we're in another dimension and you're a rock star. What crazy stuff would be in your celebrity rider? Celebrity rider? It would be Diet Coke because, you know, I can't start the day without Diet Coke, yep. let, alone, uh, <laughs> let alone go on stage and, and rock out. I, I save the proper Coke for a special occasion. Usually yep. I like out the mini bar in a hotel in Spain. Um, what, what would be in my crazy rider? Um, earplugs. Because I actually, you know, it will surprise people to know that I actually don't particularly like loud noise. Uh, I mean, I've made a career out of making a lot of loud noise, but I really, really enjoy shutting myself off from that loud noise when I don't have to. So I'd have earplugs, Diet Coke, and um, probably the Formula One uh, on TV in in the dressing room if we were even remotely close to uh, any sort of race practice, qualifying, (laughs) anything like that. Yes. Now, can you actually remember how many shows you have teched in the past four months across multiple countries? Oh, I'm sure I could sit down and work it out, but I think you'd be bored and so would I. Um, what, what I do know is that I have a third child that's been born. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, not only have I been Zooming all over the world trying to uh, trying to get theatre reopened, but I've also tried, been trying not to fall out with my wife about the... Uh, lack of attendance at home for dirty nappies late nights and um <laughs> and, and bad sleeping habits yeah i can imagine well thank you very very much for, for giving up your time to come on our trashy little show I'd, I'd really do appreciate it because you as i said before you have had a remarkable career i could not believe it looking through it's definitely time to put my prices up i mean i think i think clearly i'm not charging enough because people no. keep asking me to do shows so i think that's just if i doubled my prices maybe half the number of people would ask and i could stay at home <laughs> i'm seriously thinking it might not be the worst idea 
Yeah, no, why not? Um, know your worth, as they say out there. We'll move on to the medal. So have you had much experience with heavy metal? I know you mentioned Tenacious D in their parodic way. It's interesting. I, and I, I would I would hate to get into a debate with Evan about this, but I'm actually quite a big metal fan, but probably not heavy metal. The, you know, the original definition of metal being people like um, Cinderella, Rats, Kid Row, Quiet Riots, people like that. The, what would be the sort of Fulbrights of Guns and Roses, which was who I picked yep. today. Then when we sort of move to heavy metal, I'm sort of less of a fan. Although back in my rock and roll days, I did mix the orchestra for a lot of the Metallica uh, live concerts that they did with big orchestras. Oh, wow. Oh, and, and that's why you suggested that originally, but we'd I, already done it. I did. Oh, now I feel like a <laughs> dickwad. We could have done the second album. So I've been wrong. Yeah. You have. No, we've been robbed. We've been robbed of that insight. So, anyway. Well, big, big Mick, who mixes Metallica, and he, he and I have known each other for years. And um, I used to do, I, I obviously started out in rock and roll, um, pre musical yep. theatre. Uh, like I said, obviously, why would anyone that's listening to this know that? But I did. Um, which makes me relatively new, unique in musical theatre um, sound design in a lot of musical theatre sound designers sort of start off doing plays and kind of work their way up and then they get asked to do a small musical and then one day they wake up and they're doing musicals. Whereas yeah. I started off right at the bottom of uh, rock and roll doing all the shit jobs, pulling heavy cables through the mud in festivals, and loading trucks at five o'clock in the morning, you know, mm-hmm. relentless, relentless. And I kind of worked my way up through that, ended up mixing some pretty big bands, but then I sidestepped. So I sidestepped straight from that, straight into being a head sound on West End, uh, West End musicals. And so I never, you know, everyone sort of talks about, like, you know, I came out of nowhere, which I sort of did in theatre land. Um, but in rock and roll land, no, yeah. I did, I did, I did yeah, almost years of work experience to prove that I was worth, you know, I was, I'm like, I was worth it on the road and that I could, uh, I could keep up with everybody on the tour bus. Certainly all the bands that you've named is everything I grew up on. You know, that's, <laughs> that's metal as far as I'm concerned. But it is, is it metal? Like, or is it, it, it because, because, I, because these days it's kind of referred to as hair rock. Yeah, glam. It? You know, it's kind of referred to in a slightly derogatory kind of way. Yeah. Uh, look, I watch Drag Race religiously, so I don't see it as derogatory because I call it gay myself. <laughs> in the early to mid 80s, that was metal. It was as metal as it got, so... Yeah. yeah. No, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say it wasn't. Just because we now scream a lot louder, angrier doesn't denigrate what came before. Angrier. It, it also, it, as a genre, it was sort of made uncool mm. by you know the sort of the arrival of Nirvana kind of kicked that whole genre out of the charts straight into the gutter. You know, it was people like James Hatfield from Metallica. I think it's the Nothing Else Matters um, video where there's um, where he's throwing a dart at a dartboard and on the dartboard there's a picture of um, one of these classic hair, what would now be referred to as hair rock as a, as a band called Nelson and there's a picture of one of them on the dartboard and he's throwing darts at this picture of Nelson and then uh, in fact actually Nelson was also the um, sort of the punchline in um, Be- a Beavis and Butthead sketch from MTV and Beavis and Butthead there was a kid I can't remember his name but there was a kid in Beavis and Butthead that Beavis and Butthead were always picking on because he was considered to be like a complete douchebag and um, he would—he always wore a Nelson T-shirt, and it was sort of like that. It really became 
very, very cool to kind of kick what would now be referred to as hair rock. And, and a lot of bands didn't survive it. I mean, you know, we're talking about Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses were imploding themselves at that point anyway. So they took, you know, they sort of disappeared off the scene, but a whole load of bands kind of disappeared. And the sort of only, the, you know, extremely big mega bands like Bon Jovi made it through. Even Bon Jovi had, had a rough few years. Yeah. Um, mm. And I'm pretty sure Evan, you would not refer to Bon Jovi as heavy metal and no, probably not even metal either. Or listenable for that matter. No. That's uh, Bon Jovi's rock. Bon Jovi's all right when you're drunk. Radio friendly rock. <laughs> I, well, see, I'm actually quite a big Bon Jovi fan because I spent quite a lot of time. A, it was my, um, it was, it was very much a sound check of uh, my youth. I remember, you know, everyone has their bands that they remember sitting around campfires listening to, you know, when they were kids. But these days, I actually hang out with them quite a lot because you mentioned both Air Memphis and uh, last night, uh, not last night, night before last, we opened Diana on Broadway, mm-hmm. um, which obviously. If you uh, if you read musical theatre reviews, you will probably have read quite a lot about. Uh, but that was written by David Bryan from Bon Jovi, um, oh, and there you go. Uh, he did all the music for it. And oh wow! Um, I apologise then. It's my job to be a sassy bitch on this show. It's done with love. I promise. It is. It's done with love. It's absolutely not a problem. But okay. it does mean that two nights ago I was in David Bryan's hotel room with John Bon Jovi Antico and drinking like stuff out of a bottle, which I'm still slightly hungover, which is why I'm Yep. And now you're on this podcast. How far we fall, Gareth. Anyways, <laughs> um, I'm gonna quickly run through my review because we've done, as you mentioned, Guns N' Roses, the live album, which to the regular listeners out there, I've said live album, which means yes, there is an audience. So we'll get to that. And the only reason why I accepted that is because you do what you do, Gareth. If anyone else had mentioned it, any actor, director, choreographer, anyone, I would have said no. But if a sound designer or someone who actually knows what we're going to be talking about, that's all right. Alex, I'll, I'll put up with it for this reason. But I, I'm not a fan of live. As <laughs> that, that is purely your issue. And I've been meaning is, to bring it up is, it's, that without a freaking crowd, you don't have a show, period. That's not true. That's not true. They can I'd film. I'd like to see an empty they musical can film, show continue for more film, than a couple of nights. Like. <laughs> Well, no, that, that doesn't mean they can't film it and it forever be there for prosperity. <laughs> Thank you very much. He who complains about the lack of pro shots. <laughs> Anyways, I am going to run through my review before we bicker like a married couple. When I first saw the cover, I couldn't bring myself to judge it, nor make a joke. I mean, we all remember the spaghetti incident, don't we? Anyway, Guns N' Roses are as old as I am. As a band, just an observation. They were masters of the game with only six albums in 23 years but their output exceeded genres and audience expectations until that spaghetti incident. So having grown up with Guns N' Roses, it wouldn't be fair to score them as they haven't suffered from or caused us to suffer through 10 more mediocre albums of the same sound. November Rain, Paradise City, You Could Be Mine, they're all classics that now reside in the stratosphere, even higher than Metallica's most popular output. And to hear Axl Rose stop a show in London because people were getting hurt whilst at the height of their popularity and egos shows why they belong there. But as far as this being a live album, 
It's clear to me that audiences around the world scream the same language. Fucking annoying. <laughs> Four and a half stars. So, yeah, no, they, they picked all the best songs for this. They played the well. He sung brilliantly in every one. His voice is remarkable. You know what's completely remarkable? About two years ago, me and my wife went to see Guns N' Roses with Slash. This obviously Slash disappeared for a while. Went to see Guns N' Roses at Gofford Park in uh, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And their tour set was that live album. Nice. It was basically that live album in almost exactly the same songs in exactly the same order, even with pretty much the same introductions. And what was absolutely remarkable about it is that it was just as good as yeah. that live album is. I was absolutely blown away. You would think the amount of heroin those guys did, you'd expect Axel's voice to be absolutely screwed. I mean, in the way that so many of the big rock stars, you know, the, the singers, the voices are an absolute mess. And you know what? He absolutely nailed it. And it was it was so good. As a sound engineer, I'm standing there going, okay, I know a lot of tricks when it comes to making people look like they're singing live and they're not. And I began to, act, I, was, I was actually for a while really studying it. Going, Is this tracked? Is it recorded? Is there a backing track here? Is there? A, and I was like, no, they're not. And yeah. I was, really surprised yeah. that their current live performance is really nearly very very nearly as good as that album that's what was it what would you say it was 87 to 93 uh, yeah really, really impressive especially since the band completely imploded in the early 90s <laughs> as a result of everyone being absolutely off it you know taking it taking it to extremes and ending up in rehab they're having too much spaghetti apparently isn't that what the spaghetti incident was <laughs> I don't know. I was only eight at the time. I was too young and naive to know. I don't think I know what the spaghetti incident is. Uh, it's a bunch of covers, basically. They're all punk covers, so that's why I gave it shit. Yeah, it wasn't, and it wasn't original lineup. You know, they'd already started losing members and chopping and changing, and at that point, it was critically acclaimed. Like it got got good reviews. Yeah, but the fans didn't like it. Like my brother and sister hated it. They denounced it so i never really heard it much growing up well the fans just wanted the original lineup all back again which they've nearly got again now it's it's not far off but yeah they, this period of i'm i'm actually amazed that he, this even got recorded in the first place considering how they toured and how they used to you know they were like herding cats these guys were just shocking herding or hurting herding cats you know that surely you know no. the term herding is that a perth thing <laughs> Oh, it's definitely not a bad thing. I've heard of herding cats. Go get a bunch of cats and then try to herd them into a pen and see what happens. That's Guns N' Roses. Um, They were either drunk, high, or both 24-7. They were just an absolute shambles of, of... a group of people, but somehow they would all, you know, get them into the room, into a room together, and they would put out, you know, songs like this. It's I'm I'm amazed that it happened. Yeah, it's Axel's ability to wail. I yeah. mean, it just has this ability to just, I mean, a, a voice that is, well, certainly at the time was unique. Mm. And you know, when it comes to Slash, yes, there were there were arguably other guitarists of the same caliber around at the same time. But nobody could sling it together in the way that he could. Plus, you know, yeah. back then, stage persona, I suppose, back then, I suppose it's now as well. But, you know, these guys looked fabulous for the time as well. It was all about having a good looking lead singer and a lead guitarist who could come down the front and absolutely shred the stage and, you know, a drummer who looked good with their top off. And 
whole bands like Poison, for example, who just made a whole living out of looking really good on stage. Not, yeah. No one, including Poison themselves, would have said that Poison was, were good musicians, but they looked great, and that was what mattered. What was, it was a major factor uh, of what mattered. Well, I mean, Axl Rose is, is regarded as, as one of the greatest front men of all time. He's, you know, I, he reminds me a lot of Bruce Dickinson, the way he commands the stage. Is that Judas Priest? No, Iron Maiden. <sighs> I'll get it right one day. He's just got that way of owning the whole place. Doesn't matter how big it is, it's all his. Yeah. But he said the magic word, shirtless drummer. I like that. Shirtless <laughs> drummer. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, a- Axel, and I think that's why I've always liked him because his vocals are killer and he can hold a note. He can hold a good, strong note oh, for yeah. a long time. Uh, unless they and their sound engineers are good enough at mining to fool me, he can mm. still do it. That is absolutely incredible. I mean, I, f- I don't know how they're still walking, let alone <laughs> able to perform like that. Yeah, well, I mean, Slash did sort of die for a few minutes there at one point. You know, he, he was found in a hotel with no pulse. Stephen Adler, you know, he got fired when they were trying to do the track, the drums for Use Your Illusion 1 and yeah. 2. Um, he was just so messed up, he couldn't play the drums anymore. And they had to replace him. You know, they these guys were right on the edge 24 7 and and would somehow get up and, and put out this live album you know it's recorded in in multiple cities over multiple years and i'd swear it was the same show it's so well done yeah the blending of that annoying crowd which just sounds like seagulls down at the beach when you throw a chip to one of them and a thousand come uh now adler rocked up on clean um sober house is it with dr drew that reality show with celebrity drug addicts and then there was clean house afterwards or whatever he was on both of them is that before or after drag race in the uh in the evening schedule i don't know i only read it on wikipedia so <laughs> it must be correct if it's on wikipedia poor old Adler, he actually had a um he had a cocaine induced stroke that he survived um oh, but shit. he he did say he was actively trying to kill himself with drugs and yeah very nearly did yeah i think that's pretty common it's a fabulous um, a fabulous documentary set back then. The director was Penelope something. Spherus. That's the one. Penelope Spherus. She directed Wayne's World and The Little Rascals. Did she? The Little Rascals. Sorry. I'm a bit of a fan. I really want her on this show. Yeah, she went from directing Wayne's World to The Little Rascals. I had no idea she did Wayne's World. Yeah. Wayne's World was brilliant. And Wayne's World too. Yes. Hey, hey, Mr. Donut Man, who's trying to kill you? Don't know, but you better not. I mean, come on. Is it getting any better than that? Um, no, Penelope Spheris uh, directed a series called Rise and Fall of Western Civil- The Fall of Western Civilization. It was a three-parter. The first part was punk, yep. and the second part was metal. And that's, I mean, some of the stories in that, they've got people like Stephen Tyler and Ozzy Osbourne and all this kind of stuff in it. And some of the stories they tell about drinking drugs. And, I mean, there's, all, there's this fabulous moment in it where she's she's filming Ozzy making uh, making breakfast and um, he's talking about all the drugs he did and he goes yeah but you know these days I'm I'm totally cool and then there's this that she he pours the orange juice and it, he misses the glass and goes, goes all over the table and um and then she admitted like years later that or he and her both said actually it was staged he, he didn't even pour the orange juice it was just a uh, <laughs> but yes it's all about a lot of, a lot of it is about the amount of women they slept with and the amount of drugs they took I mean, again, the soundtrack to Wayne, you know, we could talk about Wayne's World, the soundtrack to Wayne's World, some of the, some of the stuff on that's absolutely fabulous. 
I mean, they were, they were responsible for reintroducing a whole new generation to Bohemian Rhapsody. I'd never heard Bohemian Rhapsody until I saw, saw Wayne and Garth and his friends, you know, yeah. rapping along to it in the, in the Murphmobile. And at the fight for it too, the studio said, no, that's not familiar enough, but they fought for it. And, and Wayne's World again, bringing us, um, or re, reviving um ballroom blitz as well yes I, what a great song yes by sweet is it sweet yeah yeah wow how do i remember that i'm a fucking idiot yeah and it was only a portion of it i think it was in a montage of like a chase scene or they're traveling somewhere no it was like the whole ending scene yeah, didn't they do it as the closing song that yeah oh okay she performed on their tv show or something like that and they hmm, they yeah. changed the satellite to get the guy in the limousine the record producer that's, that's right. right yeah now we've become the wayne sword appreciation <laughs> society uh which yep. is no problem with me no problem here either but um i think we all agree though that guns and roses are one what? of the the epitome of rock bands out there in terms of output, you put you put on Paradise City at a party, everyone's singing along. I mean, that's the thing. You're, you're looking at this going, these are all hits, but they're yeah. not all singles. No. You look at Appetite for Destruction, and there's really only one or two songs that weren't hits. I'd love chucking this on and knowing every word to every song and, and listening to it over and over, um, even though I didn't have to. I was chucking it back on. They were just that damn good. They were. You know, they you could have done another one, you know, and, and filled a, another album with just as many hits. It's, no, they're, they're incredible. And considering how messed up they were constantly. Yeah. Now, I did notice after the second track, they left in the comment about the crowd up the front getting smashed. Yeah, that's why I mentioned that in my review. Yeah, I just found that was rather poignant, you know, considering recent events, because they did have two people die with astro world and everything that's happened in the last few weeks yeah it does seem very poignant the fact that they were self-aware enough or aware enough of their surroundings to realize what was going on and also i always found the idea of truly fascinating that you could get a crowd to take one step back mm. i always thought you know every concert i've ever been at did anyone do that but clearly it worked mm. um i also and then that whole moment as well i'm also feeling really sorry for the uh lighting lighting designer who clearly doesn't have control of the house lights and is clearly screaming at somebody down a walkie-talkie going, Axel wants the house lights on. Who the fuck's got control of the house lights? I don't have control of the house lights. Axel wants the house lights on. <laughs> you know, I was always like, feeling really sorry for that guy, you know, who's getting yeah. screamed at from the stage. You know, hey, Phil, turn on the lights. It's like, oh, shit, this is awkward. But yeah, I, I think it's yeah quite remarkable that he had the appreciation of his surroundings, but also that he knew he could get the audience to do it. That is, mm. that's, and had the wherewithal to go, I, the audience, I can get the audience to do this and I can make life better for people, especially yeah. since they were probably off their head at the time. Yeah, and not continue until they did it too, because he wanted yeah. them to be safe and have a good time. Like you, you made a point of that. It, it was quite a poignant moment after recent events. In 88 in um, uh, Donington, two people did die in their crowd, which would have been part of this tour. You know, there would have been songs I've had to double check, but yeah, there's songs from Donington. So yeah, to, to leave that comment in about the people up the front getting smashed and trying to get the crowd to step back when they themselves have had two people die in their own in their own crowds. Um, they, and they didn't learn about that until after after the show. What was I said about the M&Ms thing, the brown M&Ms? It's for the safety of everyone there. That's why that was done to make sure shit like that doesn't happen, that stages are built properly, that mm. crowds are kept safe. Yeah. 
So, uh, but anyway, so I think um, the guns have run out of bullets and we'll chuck to a quick ad break. We're back in a moment with Russian Treasure. summer winter spring or fall the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest west end show the fossey forest ballet where's the important stuff aha a thousand pound a week ensemble rate ah that's what mamma mia likes starring philip joel and a west end cast featuring carrie alice darren denny louise demon and oliver savile and more it all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. <gasps> Darling! Mwah, 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 mwah. How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. You can watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theatre charities, acting for others, and the theatre's trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice. Tight. Alrighty, you're listening to Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Evan. And we are joined by another Gareth. Goodness gracious me, we haven't had a Gareth on this show for about six months. And now there's a Gareth and an Evan on this show. So if I call either one of you the opposite, I apologize. That's because my former co-host was named Gareth as well. And it's Evan's brother. Yeah, my older brother is a Gareth. Yes. And I know six of them in my life. It's obviously a more uh, more popular name in Australia than it is in the United States. Because in the United States, um, everyone assumes I'm actually called Garth and I have a speech impediment. And uh, in the... <laughs> In the in the Netherlands, where uh, where I actually live in in Amsterdam. Oh wow! Um, nobody's heard. I mean, absolutely nobody's heard of that, yeah. Gareth. Although interestingly, I was in a shop in uh, in uh, Starbucks or something, and I said my name to the girl behind the counter, and she said, "Oh, you've got the same name as um, my favourite character in." And then she said some big online computer game that I've temporarily forgotten. And apparently, and then I looked it up, and apparently he's like a famous knight in a in a big online computer game. So yeah, maybe the name's going to become a little bit more. Yeah, no, I think it is quite common in Australia. But I'm trying to think of now that you say that any famous American or British Gareth, like actor or anything. Uh, oh, Gareth Thomas, the rugby player. <laughs> Gareth Gates. Okay, there's a few in yeah UK. And um, there was Gareth Gascoigne, who was known as Gaza, who was a quite famous footballer. I only know this because, of course, I've Googled myself to see who comes up before I do. So I don't know exactly how many famous Gareths there are on Google. Yeah, we've all Googled ourselves, Gareth. We were once teenagers. Anyways, moving on. I'm still waiting for Spider-Man to swing past the window because that building, the um, whatever building. And, and it is CGI'd into uh, many, many New York, uh, New York Spider-Man type movies. Mm-hmm. And um, 
usually when they're filmed in Canada or Australia. Uh, so <laughs> anyways, um, as I mentioned slash bragged about in your introduction, your work has been recognised remarkably by your peers many, many times. Have you weighed them all at once? Because I'm really curious to see how many of me they would weigh. <laughs> My prediction is two and a half of me. I've never weighed them, but I do, I do, I do have aspirations to get a fourth Olivier Award because then I think they would make four nice legs for a coffee table. I mean, also, people are always really you know, self-depreciating when it comes to awards. Oh, yes, you know, I just keep mine in the bathroom, you know, on top of the toilet. And yeah. I'm like, absolutely not. Fuck that. I've got like a platform with spotlights and it plays <laughs> music when you come near it. And I'm like, ta-da! You know, but only in my own office. So I'm the only person who ever sees them. But, you know, still, I'm like, ta-da! <laughs> Why not? Like, that's... Look, it's peer recognition. It's people who do the same thing as you do that admire your work that I think to me that means a lot more than the fans voting in their people choice awards I'm very much in agreement with that I mean it's not you know when somebody comes up to me in theatre or at a party or something and says oh you know I really like the sound I, if it's then followed by I'm a sound engineer and I really like the sound or you know I'm a musician and I really like the sound it's immediately gives it more weight than my mum telling me she likes the sound you know, because you kind of to be to be recognised for doing a good job by people who understand what it is you do, as opposed to just seeing a big mixing desk with lots of flashy lights and thinking it must be very clever. You know, those kind of awards mean a lot more. Oh, Not yeah. every award doesn't mean a lot. Thank you very much, everybody who yeah. gave me an award. Don't want to. <laughs> no, but look, it's the fact there are two different types of awards. There are peer voted and there are fan voted. And why not dissect the difference? People are going to have a problem with that. Don't listen to this podcast because you're going to have a problem with literally everything that I say. <laughs> Anyways, now, okay, we'll move on to the musical because this week we gave me three options and I chose Bring It On because I'm not too familiar with it myself. So I thought this would be a learning experience for me too. I also thought it would be fun to pick musicals that I haven't done. Yeah, so I didn't see it on your bloody mile-long resume. And because it's so long, I didn't know if I was just missing it in that long list or if it just wasn't there. So now I have an answer, finally. It's not there. Um, but Evan, you tumbled into this. I tumbled into this, yeah. <laughs> well, for a change, I didn't have to watch the movie as well because I'd already seen it many times. Oh, good. I love the movie. Yeah, Stepdaughter I was obsessed by this when it came out so yeah i've seen it many times uh but from what i gather they didn't follow the story too closely no they really took it somewhere else because i was surprised that I, I listened through and i'm like there's no spirit fingers what's going on because it's that's not part of this show they haven't done that story so yeah i think this is the first lin-manuel miranda that i've had to listen to yes it's the first song i've covered on this show other than you know hamilton that everyone's heard yeah, there's a really... Okay, the first listen through was like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> it's all right, I'm not alone in that then. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, but it gets better the more you listen to it. Yeah, you pick apart the lyrics and you start hearing the comedy in it and the cleverness in it. It's All Happening is, is a really great standout track where that's very, you know, I'll just say LMM influenced lyrics, uh, rapping. Oh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay, yeah. You think you're cool now, do you, Evan? Yes. Yep, all right, go on. <laughs> Yeah, I can abbreviate him now. Yeah, we're in the know. Yeah, It's All Happening. That that was a really standout song. I quite like that. Killer Instinct was another one. That was funny as hell. Um, it's, yeah, it's a lot 
it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Um, I, I did look for some, some, some track, uh, freaking, I looked for, you know, there's no pro shot as usual. I, I saw some clips, um, but there's so many, again, there's so many school productions of it. I found it hard to sort of differentiate, which was the official, you know, what was a actual clip of the actual show or not. It seemed like the staging was really sparse. And I assume that was just because they needed to move room to move around. Um, so yeah, they've, um, they, they staged half of this with actual cheerleaders in, in conjunction with, with Varsity Spirit, the, the company who pretty much run cheerleading in general. Um, yeah, this, again, I was really impressed with it. It's funny. It's clever. It's well sung. I'd, I'd like to see it staged and see the whole thing, but no, from instantly disliking it, the more I listened to it, the, the more I liked it. I think it was good. It's great. So there is hope for Sunday in the Park with George yet. So why, why did you choose this one, Gareth? Because I was actually surprised when I realised it wasn't on your resume that I thought you must be a Lynn manuel fan. Well, I mean, how could, I mean, look, uh, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, how can you not be a Lynn manuel wow. fan? Don't tell me you're not, Aaron, because I'm sorry. I, he I mean, blocked me on Twitter, so I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> Oh, what did you say? Um, I think I said I didn't enjoy Hamilton. Well, okay. But I didn't say it to him. I just tweeted it out to my friends. And everyone's everyone's entitled to an opinion. He certainly shouldn't be blocked for that. But, I mean, the thing thing about Lin-Manuel is I would really like to be, you know, I didn't, I wasn't the sound designer for Hamilton. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be the sound designer for Hamilton? I mean, you know, the royalties alone will set you up for the rest of your life. But I, I, so, you know, the, the, the nasty bitchy part of me really didn't want Monster Black Lightning. I just don't, I think it's overrated. I, don't, I just don't like it. Um, but the reality of it is, I think it's freaking genius. And I think In the Heights is freaking genius as well, frankly. And it would bring it on, although he didn't do it all. It's not, it's not a Lin Man. It's, it's, it's mm. often billed as a Lin Manuel musical because, you know, that's going to get people through the door. He did some of it. He did some of the lyrics and some of the songs. And what is very apparent is, although I don't dislike the songs that he didn't do, um, it is very, you, you can absolutely hear his influence in it. Mm-hmm. It's like listening, you know, if you're a um, Jonathan Larson fan, uh, as Aaron, I can see the man poster on your wall, you, um, you can listen to Tick, Tick, Boom, and you can hear everything all the ideas germinating there you can hear the you can hear the the snappiness of the lyrics and you're like okay you could definitely see the genesis of what then went on to be in the heights and and hamilton and i i find that quite fascinating likewise you know tick tick boom i mean obviously it's about to become if it hasn't already it's about to become right in the forefront again because of the of the new movie that's coming out but you know, Titsy Boom was a sort of little known. Um, you know, nobody knew what Titsy Boom was, but yet you listen to you listen to Titsy Boom, and you can hear, you can actually imagine the staging. You can hear almost the first rent line before the rent line was a thing. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, it's you can hear what the staging would have been in, um, and it was you know. So, but uh, I mean, plus I also remember seeing uh, Bring It On on Broadway, and it's interesting. Evan, you, you mentioned about the set and the scenery. I actually can't remember 
anything about the set and scenery. I think you're right. I think it must have been quite a quite an empty stage. Uh, yeah, it is. What I do remember is these these girls and boys flying through the air. And I mean, I think they they sort of had a musical theatre cast, and then they had a a cheerleading cast and a cheerleading, and they were they were two complete almost completely separate entities. And yes, the, the musical theatre cast could busk their way through um, some some cheerleading routines, yeah. you know, absolutely passively. But when it came to the absolute genius flying through the air, triple spins, what is basically gymnastics, I, I think that was obviously not the musical theatre cast. And you know, gymnasts weren't expected to sing or really act. And the um, and the musical theatre cast were not expected to backflip seven times through the air while cartwheeling and and and, and looking cool doing it. And yeah, I, I I remember just generally being impressed with it, and also thinking I'm surprised it's not a big it's not it didn't become a bigger hit than it was. I imagine it would have been ferociously expensive because you have, as you say, you've effectively got two casts. That insurance for your cast, uh, especially uh, yes. in a post Spider-Man world. Yeah, well, see, I, I was wondering about in in terms of the staging, if it travelled much because I know it's done a few different productions, a few different uh, countries. Cheerleaders have a springy floor. It's yeah. literally, you know, two a sandwich of plywood with springs in in the middle, and they they lay that out across you know the, the gymnasium or wherever for competitions. They have a springy floor. You know, I assume they they would have done that for the stage show as well. I hope, you know, if that stage, you know, bit by being dropped. Yeah, so, yeah. I was just wondering if they bothered to do that, but I I don't know. I mean, a sprung a sprung floor is not a is not a an un you know an uncommon thing in musical theatre. Um, you know, a floor with a floor with giving it, and also a, I mean, pretty much every show. On Broadway at the West End has a, has a show deck as such because it's got most shows have tracks and automated information built into them. So you always end up with a sort of nine inch, you know, six inch to nine inch show deck because there's um, automation and chains and all kinds of stuff going on, dragging through them and you know, tracks and pull tables and chairs and things to set on and off. So, uh, yes, it, you're right. It would have, there would have been a cost implication to having the floor, but that doesn't make it prohibitive in relation to um, any other big musical. But you're right, cheerleaders, cheerleading is a very, very American yeah. It's a fundamental part of American life, and certainly in the United Kingdom, that is it's not a thing. We we have them here in the rugby. It's also not a sport. Uh, it is new. It is. Mm-mm. It is. Now the IOC has recognised it as an Olympic sport, but it is still not a sport in terms of. Um... Oh, you sexist pig! Anyways, no, no, this is not me. This is Varsity Cheer, because if Varsity Cheer run cheerleading. Sorry, Varsity Cheer, jump off a bridge. Are you going to follow them? Who cares what they say? What do you think? What's in your heart, Evan? Is cheerleading a sport? I didn't get to finish my sentence, so okay. you don't know. Okay. Go <laughs> <laughs> so and finish it. All right. Varsity Cheer run cheerleading. They're a $2 billion a year company. If cheerleading was ever de- declared a sport they will lose control of cheerleading. Basically, they, they sell all the uniforms, all the equipment and everything. They've copyrighted their own rules. So you can't even start another cheerleading company. 
Um, they're currently being sued. Good. Uh, under antitrust and um, even RICO uh, laws uh, over being a monopoly. Yeah, that's bollocks. Yeah, and if they if it was labelled a sport in the US under Title IX, you would then required it would then be regulated by the states. Uh, you would only have one state competition at the moment. Uh, nationally, there's about 66 different competitions. Nationals is not just nationals. There's about 60 nationals. They run it like a beauty pageant where it's just over and over and over and another competition, another competition. Yeah. There's fees, there's the uniforms, everything all has to be done through varsity. It used to be shown on ESPN. It's now they've taken it off ESPN. You now get to, you have to watch it through Varsity's app, which is $30 a month. Jesus Christ. To watch your own kids do cheerleading. These guys own everything. Up in and if it was a sport, like I said, it would be regulated by the states. It would also have safety requirements, which they don't have at the moment. Yeah. Money is more important than the safety. Medical staff at the moment don't have to be Trained. qualified medical staff. They could just be coaches. They can just be parents. There's no rules. There's no you know laws around it because it's officially not a sport and they have no intention of it being a sport because they'll lose control of it. Well, too bad. And as a consequence, about 30,000 teenagers a year are injured, catastrophically injured, as in hospital, we're talking fractures, dislocations, concussions. 30,000 a year end up in hospital through cheerleading which is uh, double all of the women's sports combined. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's really dangerous. That's why I was bringing yeah. up the floors. Like they have the springy floors in the proper gyms and the organized groups. But the amount of times I was watching YouTube doing the research on this and they're doing these freaking enormous, you know, flips and dives and stuff out on the basketball court. You know, they hit that ground, they're screwed. Yeah. Well, I thought it was regulated. It's, yeah, no, they won't. They won't regulate it. It's not going to happen. But what's in your heart, Evan? Is it a sport? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay, that's all right. That's all I care about. Definitely a sport. Definitely, definitely a sport. That's all right. As long as I I want my co-host to be sexist. They are just straight up gymnasts. Yeah. Oh, they are. They are. They're not protected. They're not looked after. They're they're risking their necks, literally. Yes. That's bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. Yeah. There was a great episode of Penn and Teller's Bullshit on Cheerleaders, uh, season eight, episode one. Yeah. That's a wealth of information. Yeah. Once you start looking into it, and like even to the point, varsity control, like I said, they're they're a monopoly. Even to the point of the the show on Netflix, uh, Cheer. Yeah. The six part. Yeah. Yeah. Where they they follow. One of them was uh, a pedophile. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. Where they, yeah, they followed a team, you know, going to their competitions. The final routine, Varsity wouldn't, because Varsity own all the footage, they wouldn't allow them to show it. And they had to use, you know, iPhone footage for the, for the final, final episode. Like they wouldn't even, uh, yeah, they wouldn't even allow the footage to be used in order to promote their own freaking brand. They, they stomp on anything negative. Wow. Um, they then changed the rules so that any competing team cannot do any press articles, you know, TV, radio, whatever. Um, in a negative light, or they could be disqualified. Really? Wow. And suddenly our show has become Last Week Tonight. Yeah, there is this enormous dark side to cheerleading. Um, and it's it'll cost any parent in America anywhere between, you know, five to $15,000 a year in fees and uniforms 
and you know attendance costs and everything else gym memberships the lot it's and it's all varsity owned varsity owned the gyms they own the uniforms they own the competitions wow. they own the tv rights they own everything and they were involved in this musical of course they were yeah they even had varsity banners up in the, the final act. Um, the the cheerleaders that they used were sourced through varsity. And I actually, I reached out, I, I emailed varsity to see if they had anything to do with bring it on the film and they failed to respond, but yeah. I tried. That's right. <laughs> Goodness me. And, and well done being proactive. <laughs> yeah, I ended up on a big rabbit hole of cheerleading. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness, no, I, I had no idea. Has that been on last week tonight at all he might have done cheerleading at some point yeah because yeah, if he did then i would have known all this and just forgotten it <laughs> like i said yeah penn and teller did it about 10 years ago and if any the only thing that changed was the numbers have got worse in terms of injuries and you know the amount of money they were you know 300 million dollar company then now a two billion dollar company and at the moment i was looking up what was happening with their um antitrust lawsuits and they're still ongoing yeah but they're currently suing ex-employees who had tried to start up their own cheerleading companies. You know, so while fighting their own monopoly in court, they're suing their ex-employees to stop them not being a monopoly. Ah, oh, it's, it's insane. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. They are nuts. I think I'm going to yeah. need to read up more on that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm totally watching this Penn and Teller episode. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, season eight, episode one. I think it's on HBO. This is a perfectly fine episode, and now you bummed us all out. <laughs> yeah, oh, the, yeah, and that's not that's not to mention the deaths every year. Of, oh, no, um, do, uh, kids, yeah. we're talking about kids. It's getting dropped on their head. It's it's bad. Yeah, and it could be avoided. I mean, it's going to happen. You know, there's so many deaths a year of foot, through football and baseball and basketball there's always a death here and there but uh, a lot of the cheerleading ones can be avo are avoidable just by having proper trained staff and proper facilities and they're not trying to do bloody backflips on on basketball courts yeah goodness me <laughs> like even just compensation for them for the for the injuries for the rest of yeah. their life because those back injuries neck injuries they last they don't go away they affect everything in your life i know this I suffer from it. There are there are many a teenage girl in a in a wheelchair for life because of cheerleading. Friggin' hell. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, this musical, I think because of Varsity's involvement, this, this may just be an ad for cheerleading. Interesting viewpoints. I wonder if Lynn Manuel knows that. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, you don't know what I couldn't find out what extent their involvement was, whether it's just, oh yeah, we'll help you find some cheerleaders. Or if they actually, you know, uh, put some money on the table. I don't know. It's really hard to, it's not a thing you can just Google. But they were quite involved in the show. You know, they, anything that promotes cheerleading in a positive way, they're, they're all for it. And then they're going to be all against us now. Thank you, Evan. <laughs> if we get sued, you're paying for it. But as usual, everything's got some big evil overlord company in control of it. Yeah, why can't it just be Disney all the time? I'm happy when it's Disney. At least then I can enjoy yeah, it. Because they're not a big evil overlord company either. I said, why can't it just be Disney all the time? As in, they're the evil <laughs> overlord company. I'm happy for them to be the evil overlord company. But when it's something like this, it just it's just so much sinister, so much more sinister yeah. than theme yeah. parks and cartoon mice. They've actively gone around and bought out all the competition. There used to be, you know, 10 different organisations doing different uh, competitions all over the country, and now there's just one. Wow. Goodness me. Sorry to dampen your 
experience with this musical, Gareth. I had no idea it was going to pull that out. <laughs> I know. I'm suddenly like, yeah, no, well, I'm taking that off my iPod. Yeah. Well, no, the musicals, the musical's good. I, I liked it. I really did like it. I like the music. The music is great. The lyrics are they're clever. They're funny. Yeah, I'd like to actually see the whole thing staged. I, I, I don't know if there's a decent bootleg or a pro shot or what. I don't know. I'd be interested to see whether the UK production is actually any good because you've got to find the people who can actually do all of that stuff. Yeah, well, apparently they were helping train. Uh, the the, the theatre kids were actually learning to do some of the, the cheerleading moves. But yeah, obviously not at the level of the professionals. Yeah, I was going to say, I think yeah. I think part of the reason that I enjoyed it so much when I saw it on Broadway was there were a lot of really, really, really good gymnasts on the stage. And actually, not being American, I'm not used to seeing cheerleader routines, you know, every Saturday afternoon at, at uh, you know, a Sheffield Wednesday game. You know, it's not um, it's not a it's not something that's part of my culture. So for me, it was it was a very unique experience. Again, maybe that enjoyment would not be there if I'd grown up watching football games. Where there's cheerleaders doing that kind of stuff all the time. Don't know. Interesting though. Yeah. No. Um. But I absolutely. I remember seeing Bring It On at the movies. Um. Kristen Dunst and Eliza Dushku. Are they, is it them two in it, or is Kristen Dunst in? Um, what's what's the other one? Um, Drop Dead Gorgeous and Gabrielle Union is in it as um the leader of the other cheer squad and Jesse Bradford. He can call me anytime. Eliza Dushku was Faith. was Faith in Buffy the Vampire yep. Slayer, wasn't she? She was. I can imagine she would be quite good at cheerleading kind of stuff if her martial arts is anything to go by. Yeah, no, she she was good. She so she played that kind of same character, that tough mm. as nails. Oh, what about Dollhouse? Oh yeah, and that that was dollhouse proof she could act i mean you know she could she could she could fight but dollhouse actually proved she could act as well mm. because you know she was almost like a, a forerunner to jodie comer in um killing eve her ability to switch backwards and forwards between accents and different personalities that was uh yeah it was almost a forerunner to that wasn't it yeah no i did love that um yes anyways we'll chuck to a quick ad break though and we're back in a moment with thrush and treasure G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. 
We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep, as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened. Everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching. And then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? Whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime. But it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins. But both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Alrighty, you're listening to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we are joined by sound designer Gareth Owen, who has just been running right around the world, putting all these shows together, getting them back on, on track, literally, because uh, obviously with COVID. Now, I have to ask this because we had a guest mention this recently. I don't even remember which guest it was, but is it true that theatres are pumping in audience cheers to trick the physical audience into cheering along? No, I don't think that's true. Who told you that? I can't remember. Someone on this show <laughs> guessed. We do occasionally use cheers. We do occasionally use applause sound effects for theatrical storytelling. I mean, you know, if somebody, I don't know, let's say Tina Turner is performing a show on stage and there's a theatrical storytelling thing that we need to show you know, the applause from the audience that she's supposedly performing to is rapturous. Then there's, then there's a 
sound effects element there that is justified. But no, well, certainly the implication from what you're saying is that, you know, that people are pumping in applause sound effects at the end of songs. Yeah. I know, oh, yeah, at the end of shows, basically, to, to boost that standing ovation. No, I mean, that, that doesn't happen. I mean, there are, there are some things that are done sometimes to try to trick the audience into applauding more. I mean, in its most simplistic form, if you take the cast microphones on stage and you leave them on during the applause, which obviously you have to warn the cast, you're going to do that because the last thing you want is them leaning over to the person next to them going, well, this is fucking bollocks audience. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you leave those microphones on, the microphones pick up the sound of the audience applauding, yeah. amplify it through the speakers, bring it back. That's a sort of more of a sort of subliminal trick. Oh, wow. There was a situation where I did a show for Disney in Vegas, and the auditorium was so dead that the uh, dead by dead, I mean, um, that no, no echoes, no reflections, yeah. that people didn't seem to be applauding in places where you would expect them to be applauding. So we put in a sort of artificial room echo system that made the room more reverberant, that we switched on and off at appropriate moments during the show. And that makes quite a big difference because it's always one of those things. I remember Andrew Lloyd Webber saying, if you're saying to me, if you're doing comedy, if you're doing a song that is comedy, you can't do it too loud. Because you need the audience to be able to hear each other reacting to it. Nobody wants to laugh on their own. Nobody wants to be the only person laughing. So if they hear other people laughing, they are uh, almost licensed to laugh themselves. They they feel, you know, oh, I think this is funny, so so do other people, so it's okay to laugh. But if you can't hear anyone else laughing, then you don't laugh yourself. And that then becomes a perpetual spiral of, well, I'm not laughing, so... No, no one else is laughing, so I'm not going to laugh. But then no one else laughs, so no one else laughs, so no one else laughs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know, there are various tricks you can do, like actually making comedy songs quieter so that you can hear mm-hmm. people. Actually, not having a completely dead space, like you know, a recording studio, is the perfect sound environment because there's no very minimal reflections, uh, minimal echo, that kind of stuff. Actually, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, for storytelling, it might be good for the sound points of view, but it's not necessarily good for storytelling. I think it was Hadley. Tim Hadley said that. Hadley Fraser. Oh, Hadley Fraser. I actually thought it was Ali McGregor. Oh, yeah. Could have been her. Oh, one of them. It was one of the guests. I don't know. We've <laughs> had that many. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying I've never done that for the purpose of inciting, in, inciting audience applause. To be honest, I think if you've got a show, where you need to pipe in applause to get people to applaud. It's probably not long for no. this world. You're probably better off, better off moving on to the next one. I think that also applies to producers getting people to stand up at the end of shows to entice everyone behind them to stand up as well. Stop doing that shit. Yeah, we all know, we all know there's two different sorts of standing ovation. There's a type of standing ovation where everyone stands up. And then there's a slight standing ovation where someone in front of you stands up and suddenly you can't see the stage anymore. <laughs> so you sort of feel like, oh, I suppose if they're going to stand up, I kind of now have to stand up. And you sort of see it rippling back through the auditorium. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's the sort of guilty standing ovation where enough people stand up that you kind of feel, oh, come on, I can't be the person who doesn't stand up. 
know, can I? So I guess I'm going to have to stand up as well. You know, there's, there's, and then there's the kind of standing ovations like the end of Come From Away or the end of Tracy Bennett's performance of End of the Rainbow on Broadway, where the lights go down and bang, every member of the audience is on their feet in half a second. That's a real standing ovation. And you can tell the difference once you get used to watching shows. Yeah, no, we've, we've actually asked a, a lot about the um, standing ovation in terms of do people think it's lost their meaning over the years? I, I really do. I feel like I feel like I feel like almost every show. In fact, to be honest, I can't. I actually feel like I can't really remember the last time I did a show where it didn't get a standing ovation. It's just. I mean, I guess I've been lucky and I've done quite a lot of hit shows, but at the same time, I just think it's become a thing, and as a result, it doesn't really. No. Matter you can, as I say, you can still tell the difference between a real one and you know. Oh, it's the end of the yeah. show. We should stand up and applaud. But I honestly, I'm hard pushed. To Remember, it's not not many shows these days that don't. Yeah, it has lost its meaning. I think. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting discussion to say are musical theatre shows deliberately manipulating the audience to applaud. Well, I'm more I'm more interested in the idea of that being put across as a bad thing because at the end of the day, people applaud because they enjoy they're enjoying themselves, and you know I don't I don't believe that. You know, I don't believe it's like the old days of the movies where they used to put in one frame in, in 24 that said applaud, that tricks people into, I, I, you know, people are applauding and cheering and laughing and crying at good shows because the show has made them do that. Now, there are no end of psychological tricks that you can use to encourage people to do that. But those are the same psychological tricks that, Elvis would have used to make a great song. It's it's just part of it's part of art. It's you know you know does does did Van Gogh think about you know I'm going to make people stop and stare with this particular picture of a fucking sunflower? Yeah, but you know there's no end of things about it that trick the mind into making great Jesus. You know that's amazing and. That's art, isn't it? I mean, it's not. I don't. It's. I. I would hope it's not quite so deliberately cynical as. Okay, here's fifty ways of making an audience laugh, cheer, and cry. Let's make sure we tick every single box in the construction of our new musical. I'd hope it's not that cynical, but that's part of. It's part of the art of, of creating art, isn't it? Manipula- manipulating the people who are viewing or hearing that art into having a good time, into enjoying what it is you've created. Yes, I edit every episode to sound literate. <laughs> you know, you can you can really dig into it from a sound engineering point of view as well. I mean, no no singer sounds like they sound in a musical theatre show if they're singing in your front row. They just don't. There's thousands of tricks that every studio engineer, every live sound engineer is using to make performances sound as good as possible. I, mean, I was having a discussion with a drummer the other day who said, well, you know, the drums don't sound the way the drums sound. And I was like, no, no. they don't. No no <laughs> recording of drums in history sounds like drums sound. This idea that a kick drum hits you in the chest, that a kick drum goes, boom, boom, boom. That's not how a kick drum sounds. That is how sound engineers for decades have made kick drums sound. That's how the public perceives mm. kick drums to sound. But it's not how kick drums actually sound if you stand in a room with a drum kit. That's not what they sound like. 
he was uh, we were discussing the fact that he, he said well you know, all the toms are the same volume they get you've, you've made it so all four toms dun, 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 all the same volume I said, yeah he said but that's not how it is I'm like, <laughs> and he's right one is a much bigger drum than another it makes they make different yeah. volumes they're not even in volume but yet sound engineers for decades have taken toms and even the sound of them no audience member wants to hear the third tom is way louder than the first tom because that's not what we do yeah. and you know you take singers Singers don't sound like that. We use all sorts of techniques. We use compression, we use expansion, we use reverb, we use auto tuning. Who wants to talk auto tuning? Oh my god, but we use auto tuning. You know, like comparing it in a negative way to Photoshop or you know that kind of stuff. Auto tune is just about. You know, we actually generally don't use auto tune live. It's quite hard to use auto tune live. But every studio record is auto tuned to some degree, and even if it isn't, every studio you. You don't hear a single take of a vocal on any any album you've ever heard. They'll do 15 different takes of the same thing, and then they'll do what's called comping, where they take all the best mm-hmm. bits and they chop it together. And go, you know what? Fred, line line three of the second take is better than line three of the fourth take. So we'll just chop that out, swap it. It's like building. It's like building a puzzle. It's like your t-shirt. It's like building a jigsaw out of all of the best bits, and creating the uh, an end result. It's, um, there's a lot of manipulation sonically and otherwise that goes into all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, apparently that was uh, one of the big pain in the ass of um, recording. Use your illusion one and two was Axel wanted to do it line by line, and it just took weeks and weeks and weeks. he's a perfectionist yes yes he's a big perfectionist i do actually have a nerdy technical question that has been bugging me for years okay you've done you know mixing in big stadium shows i'm 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 not sure how big big um but you know thinking something like wembley right mixed in wembley so you're you know wembley 30 40 60 000 people now the speed of signal is way faster than the speed of sound how do you account for that delay when the people at the back uh, a second and a half out from the people up the front. Is anything done or they just go, oh, well, that's physics? So when it comes to the sound, all of the speakers in a stadium, all the speakers in an auditorium, even in, even in a, a theatre, are all time-aligned. So if you have a speaker at the front of the, at the stage and then you have what we call delay towers, and the clue is in the title. We have these delay towers that are further down the auditorium where we hang second sets of speakers. Those delay towers have an artificial electronic delay timer added to them to compensate for the speed of sound, 330 feet a second, that, um, that the amount of time that it takes for the sound to travel from the stage, from the speakers at the stage, to the next set of speakers. Otherwise, you just get horrible echoes. You sometimes hear it at train mm. stations where you hear, um, you hear the, the, the train, 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 you know, hit coming from loads of different places. So we, we use electronic delay lines to time align those speakers up through the auditorium and, and up through the stadiums. And it's obviously a much bigger problem in stadiums than it is in theatres, but it's a remarkably big problem in theatres as well. More than, more than enough for your brain to absolutely recognize it and go what is going on this is this is impossible to listen to um and yeah so that's how that's how it's done in 
that's how the audio side of it. But when it comes to the visual side of it, there is no such thing as a sonic accelerator. You can't accelerate sound. So when you have the big video screens either side of the stage and you're at the back of the auditorium and you watch and they zoom in on the drummer and you see the drummer hitting the snare, it's nothing like in time alignment because the sound has to be aligned to the stage, which means you have to delay everything as you go back to the auditorium. So sound is traveling much, much, much slower than light, than light is traveling. Speed of sound, speed of light, two totally different things, which is why the further away you get from the stage, the more out of time sound uh, the sound is with the giant video screens that you see outside the stage. And there's no, there's no way of beating that. There's no such thing as a sonic accelerator that can make the sound and the video line up. It's just not possible. I have no idea about any of that. <laughs> so would that mean that before before you could delay, uh, before you could align speakers by time, uh, you know, before that technology came along, did that mean that you know big events like that just weren't possible, um, or they just made all the noise at one end and then just hope you could hear it up the back? So, so what we're trying to, we try to do now is that we try to get as even as possible space through the state uh, volume through the stadium through the theatres and we'll do that by rather than having one insanely huge pile of speakers at the front of the stage and turning them up really really loud so the sound gets to the back we have smaller speakers at the front that we turn up to x volume then we have another set of speakers further down the room that we turn up and then we have another set of speakers in town that way you can have three sets of speakers running at a lower volume, or 10 sets of speakers running at a lower volume, and still get the level to the back of the auditorium. But of course, you couldn't do that until the digital airlines came along. Um, and that's why, you know, you, look, you go back to Grateful Dead and their wall of sound. These absolutely insane-sized speaker systems that must have been crushingly loud for the people mm. at the front but were probably way too quiet for the people at the back because sound sound is absorbed by air. That's air air absorbs sound, air attenuates sound. So as sound travels through the air, it gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And the further away you get from the stage, the quieter it gets. Um, so yeah, that must have been, you know, that that was the old way of doing it before the digital play lines came along. Oh, it was great. Yeah. An interesting trick on it is that the very, very first way that people experimented with doing it before digital wireless came along, was they used two reel-to-reel tape recorders, and they put them next to each other, and they put a loop of tape between the two tape recorders, and then they recorded the sound onto the tape from one machine, and played the sound back from the tape on the second machine. <laughs> That's clever. And then by moving the two tape recorders yep. apart from each other, you could get the course distance, the course delay time. And then by changing the speed of the <laughs> tape recorders, you could get the fine adjustment. So you'd have these two giant tape machines with a loop of tapes and zooming around between them. That's how you could. And that is why sound engineers still refer today to a type of delay called tape echo, right. which is where the, where, that, where the term tape echo came from because it was actually tape echo. That is full on MacGyvering it. That is brilliant. Ah, oh, yeah, that, that's clever. Yeah. That's very yeah. clever. Some very clever person thought of that. Uh, <laughs> Are you still awake, Aaron? 
Yeah, no, I'm just looking at my questions just to make sure that you haven't answered anything. No, no, I've I wanted to know that the answer to that question for so many years. Ever since I went to a big, yeah. you know, a big, big show when and, and I know that there's a, you know, what what's hit, being heard up there is not what's being heard back here. I was like, how the hell do you figure that out? Yeah. And the average person doesn't think of it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm finally, finally asked the, the right person. Oh, there you go. Now you can finally move on with your life. Yeah. And, and, and how many roadies have been slapped upside their head for not coiling leads properly? Oh, that's, that's a, that, it's when you see people wrapping it around their elbows. You're like, oh my God. God, oh, that just drives me nuts. Oh my God. First, first gig, is it? Is it? Is it? <laughs> oh dear, that is so awkward. You can stop that right now. Again, going back, I, I did play drums in a cover band Plug. many, many years ago. And that was one of the first things my guitarist taught me was how to coil his leads properly. <laughs> well, now, what theatre would you say has the best acoustics? Depends what your definition of best acoustics is. I mean... I have you... no idea what it even means, <laughs> Gareth. Well, I mean, if you look at something like the Gillian Lynn in yep. London, which we basically redid all of the acoustics to make it into a completely adjustable, um, almost recording studio type sound. Uh, you know, as a sound engineer, I could argue that that's the best acoustics. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just love theatres like um, like the Palladium in London that has fabulous acoustics. And Smurfs is one of my favourite theatres in the whole world. And then there's places like the Dominion in London, which has truly awful acoustics. And you spend most of your day just fighting the acoustics rather than uh, rather than actually trying to actually make anything sound good. Okay. And then, of course, there's every stadium I've ever worked in, as Evan uh, correctly, correctly points out. Stadiums are designed to amplify naturally amplify the sound of crowds yeah. cheering they're designed to echo the sound of you know this guy cheering for this football team it's designed for um, it's designed to amplify yeah. the sound and it is a really really bad place to be trying to do amplified sound mm -hmm. yeah no i i personally wouldn't see a, a concert like at the mcg or anything and i know there was wasn't there a concert recently or something or a, no it was a boxing match that's right and people had floor seats on the MCG. You've been to Melbourne, obviously, with Come From Away, and you would have seen the MCG and how big that is. Could you imagine a boxing match in the centre of the MCG and in the field covered with seats? People complained that they couldn't see the, the ring. What were you expecting, you friggin' <laughs> morons, for crying out loud? That's yeah. the Melbourne Cricket Ground. It is like 150 metres wide. Yeah. God, it's not going to be a big surprise, that, is it? No, but, of course, people complained, didn't they? Because they're fucking morons. Uh, but it was like seeing, uh, we, we saw Queen uh, just before COVID at um, uh, Perth Arena. Um, yeah. And, yeah, the just that background crowd noise really was deafening, just uh, overlaying the whole thing. It was just, yeah. You know. Crowds are annoying. Well, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole original development of new speaker systems was pushed forward heavily by the Beatles in that you know, famous Shea Stadium concert. No mm. one heard a word. I mean, not a word. No one heard anything except Screaming Girls. No one heard what Beatles, and a single note the Beatles played. And the Beatles were like, this is pointless. There's absolutely no point to doing this. We might as well just stand up here and wave. They couldn't hear themselves. No one could hear them. It was just Screaming Girls. And the Beatles kind of went, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore until someone sorts out. Uh, so until someone starts developing speaker systems that are actually capable of 
delivering sound in a way that actually can overpower you know, this screaming hysteria. Do you do much Foley? When it comes to sound effects and that kind of stuff, we don't really do Foley at all in shows. Although for Hunchback, we had this idea that because it Hunchback, Hunchback and Notre Dame for Disney, we had this idea that because it was presented as a team of players on the stage presenting the story of Hunchback, we would also in, try to have them create all the sound effects. So, for example, we had um, we had a wind machine on stage. It was one of those ideas that seemed like a good idea, but as we went through the production, we were embellishing it with more and more recorded sound effects and that kind of stuff. Um, but in terms of Foley, no, I have a, a incredibly geeky, incredibly elaborate sound effects library that I pull almost everything I need out of. Um, I, I know that there are sound designers who create every, record every new sound effect from scratch. And um, yeah. I'm just not really that guy. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I can make, I can man- electronically manipulate the ingredients yeah. uh, from a, from my sound effects library into almost anything I wanted to make. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's how I tend to do it. Oh, that's I'm so obsessed with Foley. It just looks so much fun. Oh, it's great just fun. to be in a room filled with random shit and be like, we're going to make rain with rice. Well, that's what's so fascinating about it. So many of the sounds that you think you know what they are uh, turn out to be something completely different. You know, breaking bones is actually somebody breaking sticks of celery. Yeah. Running is hitting leather and stuff like that. Yeah, all of the classic sounds that you think yeah. you know sound absolutely you know, a punch is you know taking a cabbage and slamming it into it slamming it into it i don't yeah. know if you've ever stood next to someone when they actually get punched it doesn't sound anything like like you've been taught about <laughs> same same with door slams door slams don't sound anything like we you know how we perceive them to be another great i mean there's, like, there's no end of, of idiosyncrasies when it comes to when it comes to foley particularly in movies i don't know i mean i assume you guys both drive cars right no. Yes, yes. You see how erratic I am here? <laughs> That's what I'd be like behind the wheel. Anyway, sorry. Are. Okay, next next time you're anywhere near cars, just notice how many of them screech their wheels when they pull away. Oh, not at all. And next time, you, next time you're watching any TV or movie, watch how pretty much every time a car pulls away, it's wheel screech. Horses is another great example. My mum my mum had horses when I was a kid. I can name the number of times, I can count the number of times I heard her horse neigh mm. on one hand. But yet every horse in every movie neighs all the time. Walk up to it, go neigh, uh, pat it on its nose, neigh. Horses don't neigh, very, yeah. very rarely. And and car, car wheels don't screech either. Yeah, uh, car tires that screech on dirt roads is one of my pet peeves in film. That's a great one. I'm impressed. How do you do that? Yeah. It shits me off. Uh, like, how is that even possible? Your brain just won't accept it. Then on the other hand, I watched the uh, I watched the ninth instalment of Fast and the Furious the other day. Oh, you poor thing! And which which was beyond bonkers. And yes, I was annoyed by the um, by how the tires screeched on dirt roads, but I, I was considerably more disturbed by the idiosyncrasies in the way electromagnets work. That was probably the biggest takeaway I took from that. Selective use of electromagnets that can grab some things but not others. I thought you were going to say gear change. Actually, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was just stupid. Gear change is good on the... Well, yeah, I mean, racing, as a a Formula One fan, racing, any racing movie where they seem to be able to downshift and then overtake anything. 
uh, never ceases to amaze me. If it was that simple, wouldn't they be doing it in races? Oh, look, you come up behind a car and you want to get past it, you just mm. downshift and go around. Brilliant. Fabulous. Oh, that's how it works. Yeah. Well, my father was always annoyed at the amount. Uh, apparently, they can just lose track of how many gears they have and they can just keep yeah. changing up. So every time you change up, it adds excitement. Uh, it's like it's like changing yeah. it's like changing key in a musical. Just keep yeah. keep going up. He's watching a film and he's like, he's in twelve yeah. gear by now. I swear. How many how many bullets does how many bullets does that gun have? Hmm. Yeah. Machi- machine guns that can shoot forever. Most uh, a standard machine gun at full power goes for one and a half seconds before it's out of bullets. Mm. Not in a Fast no. and the Furious movie. Uh, you know, I was really enjoying Shang Chi all the way through that movie, and then the civilian character Aquafina's Katie character shot an arrow through the dragon, maybe five friggin' miles up in the air <laughs> or five kilometers up in the air. There's no way in hell did she shoot that arrow. The rest of the film, I was in. I was all in. Did you go to the toilet during the training montage? She was really bad during the training montage. In fact, that she got the hang of it. The, no, she didn't. Barely. <laughs> the advice given to her was don't die. It wasn't don't shoot a fucking arrow to the moon. And that's what she almost did. So I was so, ju- through all that movie. So just so I'm clear, the bit the bit that caused you to suspend uh, <laughs> your failure of suspense of disbelief what? in that movie was how far she could shoot an arrow was a <laughs> civilian character not a superhero see if it was if it was one of the literally anyone else shang chi and and his sister if they had done it i totally would have bought into it because they're super powered characters anyways so they're going to do ridiculous things like they were doing but the civilian character i just didn't buy it i'm like no way she's tiny <laughs> there's no way in hell that that was so far up in the air i was through that that whole movie i was with every silly bit I was totally in for it. Like, it sounds like every argument I ever have with my wife when we're watching sci-fi, we'll be watching like Walking Dead and I'll be like, <laughs> well, I just, it, there's absolutely no way he could jump across that. It's just like, it's just so unrealistic. <laughs> and she'd be like, dude, it's been chased by 600 zombies with flamethrowers. How is that the bit that spoils it for? Because <laughs> things can be over the top, but done in a way that is plausible or that you're at least you buy into that fantasy of it. But once something like the civilian does something extraordinary out of nowhere, if there was a lead up, that would be fine. Anyways, it's not about this, but we won't keep you much longer because <laughs> you have had a, a busy um, week and a busy couple of months. But mm. so speaking of which, what advice do you have for keeping up your stamina for such long hours at the, the sound desk? So so what, what things do you do to make sure you're not passing out? Sounds like you want a sensible answer. Welcome to Thrash and Treasure. Yeah, no, I don't. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a sensible answer. No, um, no. I, 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 try to get, I try to exercise whenever possible. I try yeah. to get outside whenever possible. And I try not to do the thing that is so prevalent in theatre where you work through all your breaks and, and work through all your dinner. And I try to I try to make sure I get breaks because it becomes much more constructive. You know, if you if you go outside and you go for a walk or you go outside and uh, eat some food, then your next session in theatre will be more constructive than it would have been if you just powered through. Yeah. Have you been in the theatre overnight by yourself? Uh, I've done a lot of late. I've done a lot of late night calls, never on my own. They're never stupid enough to leave me alone in the theatre. Yeah. Well, I did when I was a kid making my film and then I let everyone in and let, locked the, the keys inside. So they didn't let me stay there on my own again, but it was terrifying. 
It was because theaters, there's no one around. No one died in that theater, but I swear to God, I was not alone. I can imagine that. I can imagine a theater would be pretty spooky on your own. I mean, most of the time when I stay late, it's because we're standing there. We're still working on chunks of music. And, you know, last thing I think anyone's worried about is ghosts. Yeah. We're worried about our own survival, but we're not worried about ghosts. No. Yeah, no, I, I was more worried about a serial killer, I think, because I was in my uh, teen slasher phase at the time. Uh, but lastly, what's what one long-running show that you would like to redesign sound-wise, which is no disrespect to the original creatives, just purely for your own creative impulses? Wicked. Wicked, yeah. What would yeah. you do differently with it? Um, I think Wicked is of a time when it was still considered important to be quiet. And I've always felt the score of Wicked just deserves to soar. And... It was created at a time when that was not what people thought musical theatre show should sound like. And yeah, I'd like to take Wicked, I'd like to take that score and do it do it again, but louder. Yeah, I'd like to see it again, but warmer, I think. I found it quite cold, quite structured, which is very despite like I'd waited a long time to see that show. I mean I remember when I, I must admit when I remember when I saw Wicked, I remember thinking I saw it with Dina Menzel and Kristen Jenneris. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, this is all this is all fine. But actually, what I feel like I really want is these two girls sitting on on a stool with the orchestra and just singing the songs. Uh, because everything else going around it, yeah, I'm, I'm not hugely bothered by that. I, I, I'm ambivalent to that. But these songs, these orchestrations, this orchestra, these singers, this is this is fabulous. Uh, and I, but I could t- I could leave everything else going on around us. Um, you know, having said that, it's one of the most popular, maybe if not almost the certainly the top three most popular musicals ever. So clearly goes to show. Plenty of other people are enamoured enough with the story to to watch it. Exactly. So us people who know what we're talking about, we can go get stuffed. Exactly. But yes. No. Anyways, thank you so much for joining us on this trashy show. As you see, you were hanging out with Bon Jovi the other day. Oh, it's thoroughly entertaining. And now you're hanging out with bloody. Beavis and Butthead over here. That's me. I'm Beavis, by the way. That makes me the guy with the Nelson t-shirt on. Yes. But anyways, where can people find you on the social medias? Uh, At Gareth Owen Sound on pretty much every platform. Yep. Awesome. And you've got, obviously, MJ's opening soon. What else is in the pipeline? Because obviously this is a weird time of all the shows reopening at once. Fresh and... Yeah. I mean, at the moment, it's all pretty hectic getting existing shows open and shows that we're planning pre-pandemic. Um, so, yeah, we're kind of just concentrating on that at the moment. Then the early part of next year, um, I'm taking a bit of time off to be at home with the family. And then from summer next year, we start on what actually is a lot of remounts. It's a lot of taking new shows that we created in places like the West End and bringing them to Broadway. So, for example, Cinderella for Andrew Lloyd Webber and Juliet, um, uh, Back to the Future are all destined for Broadway, uh, That Out of Hell is destined for Vegas, uh, Mamma Mia the Party also for Vegas, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So as, uh, I feel like next year, uh, I'm sure we'll be doing some new stuff, but it feels like next year is a lot of taking existing shows out uh, to different parts of the world. Yep, awesome. And I uh, look forward to the bringing Cinderella to Melbourne, premiere in Melbourne, not Sydney. 
I have requested already from David Zippel. Excellent. Uh, anyways, that's it from us. You at home, take care, and we shall see you next time. Hooroo. Thanks very much. Like, like, like.